Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 16th February 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands, and also our nursing correspondence, correspondent, Debbie Evans. Um, we're going to get straight on here with uh, UK biological security strategy. Now, this was originally developed or released in July 2018, uh, but the government has decided it needs a refresh. Um, so they say that the UK biological security strategy aims to protect the UK from domestic uh, and uh, uh, ri various risks and threats, including emergency infectious diseases and potential biological attacks from other parties. Uh, so today they're asking uh, experts and others to uh, refresh to help refresh the UK's biological security strategy and this updated strategy will incorporate what they describe as learnings uh, from the recent response to COVID-19 uh, and it's also going to consider evolving priorities since the pandemic uh, and uh, reflect uh, new developments in science and technology across all aspects of biological security. So let's uh, have a look and see what the key areas that are going to be considered in this refresh. Uh, well first of all they're going to consider the possibility of a major health crisis such as pandemic influenza, non-influenza infectious outbreaks or new infectious disease. Uh, they're going to consider the possibility of antimicrobial resistance. Uh, they're going to consider the possibility of a deliberate biological attack by state or non-state actors. Uh, they'll also consider uh, animal and plant diseases which themselves can pose risks to human health, they say. Uh, and finally, they're going to look at this area as well. Uh, which is what they describe as accidental release, uh, such as when smallpox and foot and mouth escape from insecure labs uh, and dual use research of concern, where life science research is misapplied to do harm. Oh, does that mean vaccine? Well, anyways, uh, as we move on, uh, what they say is the uh, integrated review, which was published last year, and this is the front cover of the integrated review of security, defense, development uh, and foreign policy. Uh, the integrated review, which published last year, set out the vision for the UK's role in the world over the next decade and highlighted the need to review and reinforce the cross-government approach to biological security, including the refresh of the 2018 strategy. So uh, biosecurity is now lumped in uh, to the integrated review with security, defence, development and foreign policy. So our uh, you know, public health is part of our foreign policy. It's part of our uh, international development. It's part of our defense and so on. This is the fusion doctrine that we've been talking about for so long. Uh, and they're saying that uh, the strategy brought together for the first time the work uh, of, uh, of a cross government to protect the UK from significant biological risks, no matter how these occur and no matter who or what they affect. Um, so uh, let's just bring this back on screen again, uh, or this is the, the actual call for evidence. Uh, if you want to search for biological security strategy, call for evidence. Uh, the closing date for that is the 29th of March, 2022. They're not wanting to hear from the likes of you or I, Brian, because uh, you know, we're not uh, clever enough. Uh, it's only from experts and so on. Um, and uh, well, you'll be glad to know, just to finish this segment, that this work to refresh the biological security strategy will not affect the COVID-19 public inquiry. Once the terms of reference for the public inquiry have been published in draft, Baroness Hallett, the chair of the COVID-19 inquiry, will take forward a process of public engagement and consultation for that. Uh, but this particular consultation won't affect that. So I'm, I'm sure you're pleased about that. 
not particularly, I'm not pleased about it because there's so much happening around this subject. It's difficult for us to keep up with it. And of course, that tends to indicate the whole objective is, the, is to keep the wider public confused about what's going on. Um, let's uh, bring in Debbie Evans. Debbie, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, um, you're going to give us a little run through this uh, myriad of different policies which are happening. But I just want to start you off by going back to last week where we popped up a little slide and we asked the key question, uh, where's Witty? Because uh, dear Mr. Witty had disappeared from the uh, mainly the BBC limelight, certainly the government limelight, but you tracked him down because um, that very evening, last Wednesday evening, uh, he was going to be giving a talk at uh, Gresham College and you took the opportunity to uh, log on to have a look at that live um, talk which he gave. So I know you're going to be able to take us through some of the key bits that he said, but I thought it might be helpful just as way of an introduction um, to have a look at this little video clip, which is actually from uh, the Médecins Sans Frontières group, uh, where they're talking about co-infection, HIV and TB. So let's have a look at this little clip first. Patients who are infected with the HIV virus are more vulnerable to becoming infected and going on to develop TB disease. HIV most kills the, the CD4 counts. It lowers the CD4 counts. Ne? So then it's easy for the TB to attack that person. If the CD4 count is low, it's easy for TB. Not, that, not just TB, but it's easy for TB to attack that person if the person is HIV positive. So that was just a little seg segment out of that informative clip. But uh, the point that I'm making is that we, we, we are now deeply entrenched in going back. We're suddenly very concerned about HIV. We're suddenly um, concerned about tuberculosis. And Chris Whitty in his talk at Gresham College was absolutely majoring in on tuberculosis. So you'd selected some slides. I've taken a few of them about what he was talking about. This one here is um, putting the, really the uh, key fact on screen. Tuberculosis still a leading cause of death worldwide was common everywhere in 2020 around 10 million people fell ill with tb and one uh, tb and 1.5 million died um, then it's talking about droplets spread by the respiratory route people can be chronically infected malnourished immunosuppressed most at risk uh, he went on with um emphasizing that it's not just a lung disease which many people think because it can affect the heart uh, the spine, the bones, the kidneys, the glands, the lymph nodes. And then he put up some interesting uh, statistics. Uh, 
this one was labeled when the NHS started a major cause of mortality, TB incidence and even more mortality in the UK has dropped sharply. So one would have thought that this one was good news. Uh, we've got this one here, the key to preventing spread of pulmonary TB is early diagnosis, then six months of directly observed multi-drug treatment. And this is quite interesting just on its own. Tuberculosis vaccination, BCG, helps prevent severe disease but limited impact on transmission. And this one caught my eye because I'm sure it did yours. Tuberculosis is apparently an opportunity and a threat. So Debbie, what did you make of uh, Chris Whitty's address? Why are they suddenly so interested about matters to do with TB and HIV? Well, yes, Brian, this is this is very interesting. And the whole lecture actually at Gresham last Wednesday was on respiratorial illnesses focusing on specific respiratory illnesses, including HIV and TB. And I know there's been a lot of talk about HIV. Um, and I, I think I just want to make it absolutely clear, uh, clear that HIV is human immunodeficiency virus, which is different from AIDS. So we must be careful not to confuse the two. If HIV is left untreated, then that is when AIDS can um, manifest. But the symptoms of HIV are flu-like symptoms, so sore throat, rash, chills, aches, etc. I was focusing in on this, and a lot of the news has been focusing on, on HIV and whether we're going to see a surge in cases. And it's interesting that Moderna are bringing out an HIV vaccine and that we're also bringing out HIV tests. But in Australia, they've actually withdrawn a vaccine because of false positive HIV tests. So there is a big agenda. There's a big agenda on respiratorial. And I worry because obviously in this country, we can clearly see from Chris Whitty's presentation that TB was in decline. So why are we talking about it now? And for those of you that might not know, Gresham is a very old college. And for those of you that remember Marchef and looking through the keyhole, you might be interested to know that it's headed by Dr. Lloyd Grossman. So people might want to check into that. So um, HIV is definitely on the agenda at the moment. And I think looking at the co-infection, it's people that have got test HIV positive. Their immune systems are so low that the possibility of them having a latent TB, so a sleeping dormant TB, it could be reawakened. So that's something I think we need to look for and look at in the future and wonder why Chris Whitty is focusing so clearly on that. Uh, thank you for that, Debbie. Just in, in my mind, the bit that I find I'm thinking about sort of going around in a loop is that they haven't got to grips with the, their whole policy and plan around COVID-19 vaccinations. We haven't settled that issue and now they are racing on um, with concern over HIV and TB. It's almost as if they knew this secondary, this latest fear subject. It's almost as though they knew it was coming. Yeah, and I'd like to add too, and Mike was just saying on the biosecurity and laboratories, and he's absolutely right. Um, COVID 
is is examined in in a laboratory three it's called a, a, a level three but there seems to be um your viewers might find it interesting to go and look at a paper which is called construction and applications of SARS-CoV-2 pseudo viruses um, by Chen and Xiang and this what they're doing is that the the live covid virus apparently isn't allowed to be um, in a lab two, a biosecurity lab two, it has to be in a lab three. But if they're using pseudoviruses, they can down it to a lab two. And what the paper shows is that they're using an HIV one based lentiviral packaging system. So, you know, that's again, interesting to look at this lab security um and what they're doing in lower lower grade labs so you might be interested or your viewers and listeners might be interested to look at that paper okay thank you for that now the other thing that you picked up on was the health security agency uh we've got a little video clip of this man dr chris tolikin um, but it seems that that the health security uh, agency is now getting very excited about something else let's have a look at what they're talking about When was the last time you had an infection? It probably wasn't a great worry because you know you can just get some antibiotics. But the problem is that antibiotics don't kill bacteria as well as they used to. The bacteria have become resistant. In fact, there are some bacteria which are now totally resistant to all antibiotics. This is one of the biggest threats to everyone on Earth and the problem's only going to get worse. Unless we act fast and together, we're going to enter an era where no antibiotics work. It will be like going back to the 1930s, before they were discovered. Infections that we now regard as trivial were often fatal. Complex surgery was impossible because of the risk of infection. In fact, modern medicine depends massively on antibiotics. Did you know cancer treatment destroys the immune system? Most patients need antibiotics to survive. Imagine, no more heart, bowel or bone operations no more cancer treatment. This is where we're headed. But with three very simple steps, we can all become antibiotic guardians. Step one, don't demand antibiotics from your doctor. We've all been there begging for antibiotics because you feel terrible or worse still, you're looking after a sick child. We don't need them every time we're ill. In fact, although everyday infections may make you feel unwell, antibiotics make very little difference to colds, flus, and sore throats and coughs. So ask a pharmacist about over-the-counter remedies that can treat your symptoms. Step two, take antibiotics exactly as they're prescribed. Never save them for use in the future. Never give them to someone else. They'll work better and the bacteria are less likely to become resistant. Step three, spread the word. Tell your friends and family to use antibiotics properly. Send them this video and share it. Antibiotics are some of our most precious medicines and we're gonna lose them unless we all become antibiotic guardians. Debbie, explain this one to me. How, how is it that they've suddenly now got very excited about problems with antibiotics when we know we've known that this has been a problem building for a great many years, largely because, of course, doctors have been handing out antibiotics like sweeties. Why are they, why are they on the issue now? Well, that's a very good question, Brian, and it would lead you to believe that possibly 
maybe in the future we could be seeing a rise in what what may be described as superbugs that may be resistant to the armory of antibiotics. You know, antibiotics have been around a long time and there's only one charity at the moment called Antibiotic Research UK who's actively looking at new antibiotics coming down the pipeline. But antimicrobial resistance, which as Mike mentioned a minute ago, this is a very big issue. The UK even has, um, we have our own envoy. Dame Sally Davis is our own envoy for antimicrobial resistance. And the whole thing is that we, we, we shouldn't be using antibiotics. We mustn't be using antibiotics because anything that's coming down the line will be resistant. So where does that leave patients that need antibiotics, patients with pneumonia, patients with HIV that need antibiotics, patients with cancer that need antibiotics. Where does that leave them if we're now going to discover diseases that are no longer um, no longer treatable with the armory that was agenda? Our antimicrobial resistance, a really big agenda for the World Health Organization, for the World Bank, for the World Economic Forum. Uh, the UK um, has got a five-year and a 20-year plan ahead for antimicrobial resistance. So it, it, it leads me to think that we may be seeing some superbugs of which we will have no treatment. So if we've got no antibiotic treatment, what are they going to be use, using for these sick, sick patients? Uh, and if we and if we've got damaged immune systems, of course, this is going to compound the whole thing. Uh, well, here's the lady you mentioned, Professor Dame Sally Davis. Encourage our audience to have a look at these people, who they are, and have a look at their background. Um, basic biography there. But uh, this is what's interesting uh, because we mentioned the other day, and we're going to mention it in the news today. Uh, in the news today, the Blavatnik School of Government. So here's uh, Professor Dame Sally Davis. She's also got a foot in the in the Blavatnik School camp. She's also in with the Clinton Health Access Initiative. So we asked the question: Who are these people, and and what are they doing? Well, don't forget, Brian. She's former chief medical officer, and uh, she um, was the person who suggested that the way to deal with Novichok was wet wipes. <laughs> Indeed, yes. indeed. And uh, they stay in in positions of power and continue to pump their advice into the system. Uh, so, Debbie, you'd picked up very much on uh, Professor Dame Sally Davis and what she was up to. Uh, this was another one that you'd picked up on here. So this is 24th of January 2019. Uh, but it's, uh, it says HM government contained and controlled the UK's 20 year vision for anti uh, microbial a microbial, sorry, microbial. I'm having trouble with that one. Thank you, Mike. And microbial. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. And also this one, a collaborative future in our vision for AMR in 2040. The UK is working with partners across all sectors and levels, including professional professionals and professional bodies, society, private sector, industry, investors, manufacturers, retailers, search community, academia. United Nations, the European Union, uh, multilateral and international organizations and other governments. So this is really a, a worldwide effort here. And then we've got a statement uh, on resistance today. So we can see, Debbie, that when the when the government is talking about what's going to happen in UK, it's not really what's going to happen in UK. It's a mere small part of what the global 
health security policy is? Yeah, absolutely. This is this is a world agenda. If you, if any of your viewers or listeners pin to a search bar antimicrobial resistance, and then you page in the World Economic Forum, the World Bank, the World Health Organization, the United Nations, this is a world issue. And apparently, the World Health Organization say that it's one of the biggest global threats to security antimicrobial resistance. So this is a big deal and something I think that we need to be looking at very carefully. Okay, thank you for that. Now, I just wanted to remind our viewers that uh, a lot of it due to your effort was to get people to have a look at the Medicine and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency board meetings. Um, we've called this up a couple of days. Uh, let's have a look at their latest viewing figures. Now, Originally, only about 60 people were ever viewing these board meetings. We've started to encourage people to go and look at what they're doing and saying themselves. And the numbers have now shot up to 1,900 plus for the uh, January board meeting. So that's got to be good news. Uh, but something else has happened, which we thought was very surprising. Suddenly, the MHRA has got technical difficulties. And this is an email sent in to us by Grace. And she says, well, they had technical difficulties in their board meeting and I, I was kicked out, unable to ask my questions. That's a remarkable coincidence, Mike, isn't it? So if we have a look at the screenshot, which is on the left of your screen, uh, we can see what the MHRA had to say. They said that, unfortunately, we're experiencing some technical difficulties with the live streaming this morning, which we were unable to resolve. However, the meeting is being recorded and a link to the recording will be sent out once it's available to view. If you've pre-submitted any questions, these will be addressed by the board and we will make these available to you. Uh, we will, will now remove you from the meeting. Apologies from any inconvenience. So the MHRA with its uh, millions of high-tech AI stuff can't run a Zoom meeting so the public can see the board meetings. But Debbie, uh, lastly here, you've taken them on because you've exchanged emails with the uh, MHRA and uh, you're pointing out that basically they can investigate the drug doxycycline, but they can't investigate uh, matters to do with vaccine adverse reactions. Just very quickly, tell us what that exchange was about. Well, I mean, I was very concerned that the... Um the MHRA board meeting has been had been interrupted and I wanted a reason for that but I also you featured last week uh, the doxycycline um, one person had died uh, from uh, presumably doxycycline um, as, as they were quoting and the MHRA and the Commission of Human Medicines have decided to do a full investigation now what's interesting about doxycycline is this is a belts and braces antibiotic that's been around for a very very long time it's very well tested and used by a lot of people. So if the MHRA and the, uh, the Commission for Human Medicines are going to conduct a full investigation for one death, my question to them was, when are you going to start an investigation for, I believe, the latest figures for deaths um, on the serious adverse reactions on the yellow card is 2010 now. So my question is, is when are they going to launch an investigation into those 2010 and climbing deaths. And I, I hope to get an answer fairly soon. I did write to June Rain's email address, which is available online. Okay, Debbie, thank you very much for that. 
Okay, where does that take us? Then? I think we're into vaccine. We're, we're into vaccine uh, uh, damage. And uh, here is, well, many emails this morning about this. In fact, here is a job advertisement from uh, the Indeed website. It was on other websites as well, asking for uh, caseworkers. Uh, and uh, what does it say? It says an opportunity has arisen for multiple caseworker positions or posts within the vaccine damage payment team as part of our primary care service directorate. Uh, the vaccine damage scheme team uh, works on behalf of the Department of Health and Social Care to process claims for a one-off payment to people who have suffered a severe disablement due to direct effects from a qualifying vaccination. Uh, these roles, on occasions, uh, they go on to say, will also support work within the provider assurance team who undertake contract and performance management activities to support NHS primary care uh, providers and commissioners. And then it goes on to say, due to the nature of work streams, there's an expectation of handling, uh, handling sensitive and emotional beneficiary inquiries received through a vari variety of media methods. And the first thing that struck me was that bearing in mind the sensitivity of this uh, and in fact, the need to, to deal with people in a particular way, I would have thought that the types of people they needed for caseworker for these roles would have been relatively qualified, but the, the salary is appallingly low, yeah. uh, Brian. So. Uh, that's a call, call centre wage. Well, exactly. So, so £22,500 £22, to £25,000. Um, uh, but look, I just wanted to mention uh, what the government says about the vaccine damage payment and what the NHS says about it. So uh, here's the uh, page from the government website on vaccine damage payment. It says, if you're severely disabled as a result of a vaccination against certain diseases, you could get a one-off tax-free payment of £120,000. This is called a vaccine damage payment. You can also apply for this payment on behalf of someone who has died after becoming severely disabled because of certain vaccinations. You need to be managing their estate to apply. And then if we look at what the NHS uh, says, uh, they say to make a claim, you can download the form. Uh, and But here's the, the key part here. What is the vaccine damage payment scheme? They say the vaccine damage payment scheme is not a compensation scheme. It does not prejudice the right of a disabled person to pursue a claim for damages through the courts. Uh, the VDPS provides a one-off tax-free payment to uh, successful applicants where, on very rare occasions, vaccination has caused severe disablement. The average non-COVID-related claim takes around six months to investigate and process from the date we receive a claimant's application form and request their medical records. This time frame can vary from case to case, and we aim to progress claims as quickly as possible. They do not say on this page or anywhere else that I can find how long COVID-19-related claims take whether they're actually taking COVID-19 related claims, uh, but that six month time period, as you can see there, is related to non-COVID-19 claims. Uh, but if we come back to the uh, the government's uh, page again, uh, and just scroll on down that little bit, and uh, this is what it says, uh, because although you might be able to get a tax-free 120,000 uh, pound gift from the government in the event that you've got a disabled uh, relative or whatever, or you're disabled yourself, uh, if you're on benefits, uh, they're going to claw that back as much as they possibly can. So uh, effect on benefits you receive. A vaccine damage payment can affect benefits and entitlements like income support, income-based job seekers allowance, working tax credit, child tax credit, universal credit, pension credit, housing benefit, council tax reduction, employment and support allowance. Uh, the effect the payment will have depends on a number of things. This includes the payment being put into a trust, and the payments being uh, and the payments being made from it. So uh, basically, uh, you get the money, but if you're on benefits, um, you're going to lose. 
your benefits. Uh, and, it's, uh, it's very cynical, it, Mike. It's absolutely cynical. So, if you, so in other words, the poorest people who probably need the most help uh, are getting that help effectively removed or reduced at the very least. Yes, and we know that the traditional, the existing track record of vaccine damage payments is a very, very protracted process where some people have taken up to 10 years to get any form of payment. And by the time they received a payment for vaccine damage, the sum wasn't enough to cover the expenses that had already been paid out in the preceding years. So it's remarkable that suddenly when the MHRA has yet to produce the uh, quantitative risk assessment into vaccine damage, they're now dangling the carrot of, of payments in front of people and saying, well, if you're poor, we're going to claw it back anyway. It's, it's obscene. Uh, yes, Alex, uh, I know you wanted to say something on this. What are, what are your thoughts? Uh, I was struck by the locations just for one thing, Mike, because on the NHS jobs posting with the job reference 914-BSA3198, uh, we see that the locations are three across the north of England. Newcastle, obviously a major city, Wakefield, a city of about 100,000 in Yorkshire, uh, Middlebrook, which isn't actually uh, a settlement in its own right. It's just a, a, a business park uh, somewhere in the vicinity of Bolton being the nearest really large built up area. So it's a, there's a suggestion that this call centre is in you know, not actually in a town centre at all. And I was also struck by the endless inordinate guff in the main posting that I came across uh, about how the NHS Business Services Authority is the bee's knees. You may already be using some of our services. We're one of the UK's best big companies to work for. We care, spelt out as an abbreviation about what we do, an acronym, and that supposedly stands for our values are collaborative, adventurous, reliable, and energetic. Endless stuff about commitment and passion for diversity, BAME, disability, neurodiversity, LGBTQ+, armed forces, women's networks, etc., hybrid working. And there's a warning there that actually you might actually have to come into the office horror of horrors because it's a national position. Uh, the thing is, a, it's a dog's dinner. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, Alex, um, you wanted to highlight this from the Daily Echo. Uh, Christchurch Priory unveil new gargoyles during ongoing repair work. Uh, I, I wasn't certain whether this was a joke. It is indeed a case of life imitating art or humour, Mike, and people will notice if they're eagle-eyed that this is just shy of a year old. The reason I've spotted it is being reported in Bournemouth's local paper, The Daily Echo, by Greg Luckhurst, the Facebook community reporter, is because a stalwart con contact of mine in the fair county of Dorset said that a local had looked up while passing underneath Christchurch Priory, a fine Anglican building down there, and had seen this NHS gargoyle and photographed it. I circulated it on not the image that you're seeing now, but the, the, the photograph made by uh, a local contact uh, who was in touch with my Eastern Approaches telegram group. Um, and this photograph, which I circulated, got the comment from many people, that's a bad Photoshop. It wasn't quite as colorful as this official press image, but the official press image, press image here uh, has a deep blue background in these two engravings. The one on the left is really what struck me more because that's the royal insignia, Elizabeth II Regina. And of course, the royal coats of arms have been displayed, for example, in paintings and banners inside uh, established Anglican churches because they are established historically. But to put a gargoyle type, uh, well, in this case, a, a stonemasonry on the outside in much the same way that a barracks or uh, a post office would display the royal insignia as you walk in, uh, proclaims ownership. 
to me. So that's even worse than making a gargoyle out of a masked up NHS nurse, uh, quite apart from the question of whether you uh, can call something that's a carved stone object on a, on a nationally established church building an object of worship. Does that mean that the Crown and the NHS are the idols that are worshipped in this place? Uh, in the very general sense, it just reinforces to me uh, that a major analytical thing to get sorted is the hierarchy of which mind space institutions are the top ones. And I'm increasingly seeing that the Church of England is fairly low down the pecking order, the crown above it and the financial institutions, the city, as I said in my testimony to Rainer Fulmich the other day, seem to be the ones right on top, two levels above the Church of England. Yes. OK, well, let's let's move on to this then. And uh, well, the government has announced a whole lot of money for fighting zoonotic disease. So uh, uh, let's uh, put the Caption on this, so fighting zoonotic disease, what is zoonotic disease? Well, anything which might cross the boundary between animals uh, and humans. Um, so the, what is the government saying? The UK's fight against zoonotic diseases, including avian flu and bovine tuberculosis, uh, is receiving a major boost today uh, with the allocation of £200 million for a programme of investment into world-leading research facilities. Um, so this money is going to be spent on a revamp of the Animal and Plant Health Agency uh, scientific laboratories at Weybridge. Uh, now, they describe Weybridge as renowned for its specialist research and laboratory facilities, and they say that it's animal health and science disease control capabilities uh, with a focus on uh, eradicating high-risk animal diseases uh, is, you know, it's it's world-renowned is what they claim. And my, I'm, I'm going to ask, is it? Because, of course, it was uh, that institution at Weybridge which was responsible for the slaughtered on suspicion policy along with uh, Neil Ferguson uh, of COVID-19 modeling claim because it was his models that were used to justify the slaughtered on suspicion policy. So if you haven't seen uh, this documentary that we produced a number of years ago now uh, called Insight, Slaughtered on Suspicion, then do watch it. it, and it but I do stress that it's difficult watching because the, the, the 2001 foot mouth crisis was a, another despicable act by the British government. Uh, but it was the, the Weybridge team that uh, that, that ran that policy. So uh, anyway, coming back to this, they are currently tasked, of course, uh, with dealing with the largest avian influenza outbreak uh, on record in the UK. Uh, this outbreak uh, of, uh, so, so sorry, start again. The outbreak of COVID-19, a zoonotic disease, has reiterated the importance of boosting our resilience to help prevent future pandemics, they say. Uh, alongside these threats, the UK must be prepared for future risks from animal diseases, which could pose a significant risk to UK farming and wildlife. The hypocrisy in this, because the risk that uh, that was posed to UK farming as a result of the slaughtered on suspicion policy uh, goes well beyond anything that these guys are talking about. Um, I just want to also mention that, strangely enough, and okay, coincidentally, but we've got the same uh, bird flu narrative breaking out in uh, in the United States as well. Uh, and uh, so this seems to be, once again, a, a, a transatlantic uh, narrative. But uh, the 200 million that they're talking about is part of a 1.2 billion pound package of funding uh, for uh, investigating zoonotic diseases. But more fear, of course, of the whole thing packaged in fear whenever they're talking about it. Yes. Um, and uh, so then let's move on to vaccine research. Uh, so £10 million going into more vaccine research, this time uh, to tackle some of the world's deadliest diseases in low and middle income countries. Uh, and uh, so this is going to be provided by the, uh, this £10 million is going to be provided by the UK Vaccine Network. 
uh, and it'll be delivered by Innovate UK. It's been awarded to 22 research projects uh, and uh, it's looking into things like Ebola, Lassa fever, uh, Zika virus, uh, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, uh, and so on. Um, and some of the projects are, well, this is, this is the bit that, that uh, grabbed me because some of the projects are gonna be looking at disease X. And we've been hearing more and more about disease X in the last uh, couple of months because this is the uh, apparently imaginary uh, future pandemic which is coming down the track which is going to kill us all unless we uh, spend lots and lots of money developing health passports and health security infrastructure and intelligence gathering, bulk data gathering and so on. Um, so what does uh, Sajid Javid have to say about this? He was very excited. COVID-19 has shown us firsthand just how important it is that we work together to keep everyone across the world safe. But strangely enough, Brian, he was also talking about opportunities from COVID-19. Um, and uh, this seems to be another narrative which is uh, running right through every one of these policy announcements. Well, this is the narrative that the UK is to be the leading authority and developer of all, of all pharmaceutical products and vaccines worldwide, including all of the genomic sequencing. So um, this is very, very big business, billions of pounds, trillions of pounds, probably if you take it worldwide. Um, they're not talking about the commerce side of this. They're only talking about health security as if this was something to protect the population, which yes. doesn't appear to be. Indeed. Um, Alex, uh, well, we've been talking on the programme in the last uh, couple of days about people standing up and, and resigning where they felt that uh, policy related to COVID-19 wasn't appropriate and the way and lockdown policy and so on. Uh, do we have another one of these now? We do indeed, and this is uh, a Detective Constable Charles Mallet, whose last day at work in Gloucestershire Constabulary was yesterday. Uh, he's actually a gentleman with a, a long background in the army. He was at Eton and Sandhurst and was involved in royal visits and all kinds of interesting things, and is also a smallholder. But a, a, a year ago, in his mid-40s, he decided to transfer and use his analytical brain uh, in, the in the detective part of Gloucestershire Constabulary, the CID. Uh, however, he soon became aware that statutory instruments, that secondary legislation in England and Wales, um, was being used unlawfully uh, to restrict the liberties of, as he regarded it, about a third of the population. And he knew the law and lawfulness well enough to raise questions about this. Trouble is that uh, with a couple of honourable exceptions, as I understand it from talking to Charles Mallet, very few mid-ranking and senior officers had any time for this and that they had just been completely brainwashed by the mainstream media dialogue, uh, which Charles Mallet summarised to me as, it's about health, isn't it? So you need to bypass your uh, normal reasoning. And uh, he, as, he, as he put it, um, if, if we as the police had been told um, the Prime Minister wants to lock up everyone who hasn't paid their council tax or they're more kept up on their mortgage repayments, then people would smell a rat and thinking, why are the banks uh, instrumentalising the police? But because it was done in the name of health, uh, as Charles Mallet puts it, nobody bothered to think. So finally, this uh, is a slightly redacted version of the letter. He's written via the chief of staff to the chief constable of his county force uh, with a notice to terminate employment. The letter was written on the 19th of January, and we're now allowed to disclose it because his service has finished yesterday. And Mr Mallet writes, Dear Chief Constable, it is with great regret that I write to give notice of my intention to terminate my employment with Gloucestershire Constabulary. As you would imagine, I have given due consideration to the matter and reached the conclusion that I can no longer serve such an organisation. 
Prior to the introduction, introduction of statutory instrument 1416, I wrote to the Chief Constable to express my concerns. Despite the increasingly authoritarian and almost entirely baseless policy being implemented by government diktat, there has been a complete absence of discourse or debate within the constabulary. Given the profound effect that comparable measures have had on police forces and societies across Europe and the Commonwealth, I find this disturbing and alarming. He continues, one reason for writing to the chief constable, because of course it's not the natural, the normal way in the police and they're quite rank conscious, so you're supposed to sort it out at your superintendent level. So he's being polite and acknowledging that this is unusual. But he says one reason for writing to the chief constable was to avert the crisis in policing that will be brought about by implementing regulations as opposed to statutory law that are so flagrantly discriminatory. I also wished to highlight the fact that in policing these regulations, which arguably is not standing on the oath, officers will be failing to uphold the fundamental human rights of citizens, which of course is the police oath, uh, and therefore breaching the oath of allegiance, as he says. The, res this, the result of this constitutes a loss of the legitimacy to police by consent, which I'm sure our viewers know is the fundamental principle uh, of British policing since Peel, and complicity in bringing about a fundamental division in society. And Charles Mallet signs off by uh, speaking about an annex of previous correspondence, which I will not read out, but I have seen and sadly amounts to him raising with his immediate chain of, of authority. Have you thought about this? And then saying, well, of course not. We just do as we're told. Would you like to talk about it over coffee sometime? Uh, very unreassuring. So that he produces that as an annex to this resignation letter. And Zen says that he's been speaking to the executive board, yes, the uh, what's not, what used to be known as the chief officers group, has in at least the county of Gloucestershire renamed itself the executive board of the police. As far as I am concerned, Charles Mallet adds, it does not make good reading. There is a fundamental inability to grasp the issue at stake and a willful conflation of restrictions in the name of public health with the introduction of a mechanism of segregation not seen in the United Kingdom before. It is scarcely credible that the principle of the matter would be ignored entirely by Gloucestershire Constabulary, and it suggests a deficit of both leadership and moral fortitude. He signs off, as I heard last year, fascism is never imposed by fascists. There aren't enough of them. Fascism is imposed by the people that acquiesce. Uh, DC 2982 until yesterday, Charles Mallet. I suspect we'll be hearing more from Mr. Mallet. I found him a very fine man to talk to. And I think that his stand is eminently replicable by people in any other numbers of, uh, of professions. Uh, what you could replicate from him is simply asking your immediate superiors and going up the chain as far as you need to. Have you considered the fundamental lawfulness of what we're implementing as policy in the name of health since COVID? And you will usually find the answer is, well, of course, we don't think about that. We just do as we told. If you document that, and then if you're prepared to resign, given your personal circumstances and conscience in the matter, then you will have done the nation a great service because you will have put on record that people are following orders and not thinking. Yeah, and it was a very uh, well-crafted uh, letter, Alex. I found it superbly well-crafted, but without wanting to sound snobbish for the sake of it, Charles Mallet is of my generation and went to a senior boarding school, Eton in his case, and uh, got a good degree. He was taught to think critically, and that was a point made in our phone call yesterday. People under our age who've got the talent to do that haven't ever been taught to write this way. And those above our age and senior to our rank who've been in any kind of service to the nation used to be able to speak and think like this, but they've now had it drummed out of them.
Yes. Uh, now, Alex, uh, you've got here from Remnant MD, uh, International Grand Jury, Day 2, Historical Background, Part 1. Just before you talk about this, could just for anybody that doesn't know what Fulmic is doing with this, just, just give us a, a quick two-second uh, introduction to what the Grand Jury is about. The best, the shortest summary is that which uh, Rhino Fulmic's team put on screen during the sessions of their Grand Jury. They put in the bottom right-hand corner model proceedings, right? Lawyers do this like any serious professionals when they are, uh, well, without any disrespect meant, psyching themselves up for the main match, shall we say. They go through their arguments. Uh, there has been sniping at Rainer Fulmich and his team uh, because people claim to have been disappointed that this isn't a real trial. Fulmich and the others involved made every effort to take this to a national or international court of actual standing. Uh, they're all too corrupt. Uh, and so rather than sit on their hands, Fulmich and his associates have decided to run through the arguments in what would sometimes be called a mock trial. But it is solemn. It, the grand jury of public opinion is what they're calling it. It is meant uh, to be uh, an opportunity for real lawyers, including judges in various jurisdictions, to hear evidence and to reach uh, arguments uh, and evidentiary basis, which can be lodged in other courts in the current or future time as, as, a, as opportunity arises. So it is not a, a media show or a Pied Piper act, as people have been carping from the sidelines. It takes a phenomenal amount of work to argue. And Fulmich and his, other, his associates have proved very solid in it. So I'm a, appreciative of the um, blogger on Substack in the United States called Remnant MD, who has done, a, shall we say, an augmented potted transcript of my testimony, which led off the first day of expert witnesses, which is quite an honour for me. Um, and of course, Brian and Debbie followed in, in the same slot. I'm also grateful to the Daily Expose. Uh, they have one person there who is doing faithful transcription of, it seems, every session, which is a huge amount of work. Uh, so Remnant MD, uh, I'll just pick out bits. He says that, well, it's very nice of him to say this, that the perspective I provided, it was very bare bones indeed, but that perhaps that's what made it starker for people. He says it completely floored me, obviously a well-educated dissident medical thinker in the States. He says, it's my, my account is the ultimate historical backdrop. I start in about 1870, and if you tap that again, you can see that I summarise that pretty much all of UK columns work down the years uh, crystallises to this, that from about that generation, uh, the City of London elite uh, introduces revolutionary and um, ersatz ideas in these spheres of life, education, intellectual property, or rather the theft thereof, healthcare and governance. And that really that forms much of the backdrop to the modern world, which I call the cartelization of the world. Um, he he um, uh, takes a quotation from my testimony. It is the consistent finding of UK column and allied researchers and commentators that the city and its soft power institutions, BBC, academia, the church, and of course the NHS, continue to regard the battle for the mind as their top priority. Health is regarded merely as a subset of that broader battle. And in the final bit I've extracted, Remnant MD brings out the implications for Western democracy, and he and the States is particularly struck by this division between the coastal elites uh, uh, who are uh, increasingly being told to, to live under the Crown's model, as it were, and the real American revolutionary sentiment that's preserved perhaps more the substance of English liberty. Um, Brian and or, or Debbie, uh, it seems to meld very well with what Matthew Ayrett went on to speak about with regards to Canada, and then what both of you said about the NHS and mind control in the in the British deep state and pharmaceutical companies. Uh, it's, it's, there seemed to be a certain flow to it, more than we could have planned. Uh, well, that was certainly true. Let me just bring this one up on the screen because I'd like to ex uh, to thank the expose that uh, 
has uh, put out a, tra a transcript of, uh, of what I said and what Debbie has said, which has been very helpful of them. One or two words are not quite correct, but the overall thing is very good indeed. Uh, but of course, what did we do? We took it from the history which you and Matt gave, and we translated into the fact that we had gangsters now running the world's political system, and their agenda is one to control the minds of people, but also uh, to control people's bodies, as we can now see with this uh, completely false pandemic and, and the malicious vaccine program. So I think it was very interesting the information that came out, and we have certainly seen a good a good reaction from the audience. But I would also like to encourage people to watch all the speakers because later on in the evening, uh, there were some very good testimonials by the ladies present in that group, in particular showing how the United Nations and the World Health Organization had usurped uh, national law in order to take over control of the health policies in the UK, USA and other countries. And I don't feel those ladies got sufficient, if you like, credit for what they were saying because it was late in the evening. Mm. And that okay. was Astrid Stockelberger and Sylvia Behrendt, that's the names yeah. of those two ladies. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Alex. Okay, thanks, Alex. Uh, okay, let's uh, move on. If you like what the UK Column does and you'd like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org slash community and there are options to help us out there. Also, if you could uh, share any of the material on the various platforms uh, where you see it. Okay, thanks. Thank you for that, Mike. Now, we had, have had a regular stream of emails. This one uh, caught my eye. It said, wow, you mentioned Blavatnik, February the 14th newscast. I stumbled them a bit back. Uh, guess what? They did a 79 million taxpayer funded study on us Canadians on the sly. Person says they don't have a phone and they live in the wild, so they're not too worried about what's going on. Uh, but they're asking whether this study was legal, uh, but it appeared to be tracking people with smartphones and cell phones to see what messaging had worked best in getting Canadians to follow the policy and be locked down. And uh, the person who sent this email was kind enough to give us a link through to this document. And here we see Oxford and the Blavatnik School of Government. But all of this is to do with having a look at what was going on inside Canada. And if you freeze this detail abstract on the screen, you can see exactly what they were doing. Uh, but it says Canadian provinces and territories took highly divergent approaches to COVID-19 pandemic using the Oxford COVID-19 government response tracker indicators and aggregate stringency indices. This paper explores variation in the timing and relative stringency of government responses. So this is the Blavatnik School of Government funded by a billionaire giving vast amounts of money um, simply marching over the pond to have a, have a look at what was happening in Canada. And quite rightly, a member of the public has said, what is this organisation doing interfering effectively in our internal politics? Alex. It is a very succinct illustration of what you and I and Matt Ayrett and Debbie were pleading in the first half of the Grand Jury uh, Day 2 on Saturday evening, which is that the Crown regards Canada, Australia and New Zealand in particular as its laboratories through the Privy Council model. Uh, and you know, the Black Blavatnik model is, is very much at the forefront of that because they are led by their inaugural professor uh, or inaugural head, Professor um, uh, Nairi Woods, 
who uh, is a name that might not be familiar to many, this New Zealand lady who's moved to the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford. But of course, she's the lady who steepled her fingers recently at the World Economic Forum and said, we, the elite, can do beautiful things if we come together because we're united now around the world. And the only problem is the plebs, plebs won't take our lead as they used to. So it, you know, a school of government, another that comes to mind is the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, that should alert you to the fact that this is a, 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 a what works laboratory in the service of the laboratory, uh, trying to work out how to get compliance out of people. It's very little to do with sworn governments. Yes, it's, and it's, it's clearly globalist when, when you look at where the seats of, of power are in that, but we'll be doing more on that. I'd just like to say that uh, uh, my interview with Dr. David Cartland will be up uh, for this evening, so keep an eye out for that. A very, very interesting uh, interview where a GP says, I couldn't really continue to work in the NHN, NHS anymore um, the final straw for him was what was being done with the vaccination of children, but also he was remarking on a number of other things, including strange behaviour from colleagues. And uh, Debbie, just one for your comment very briefly here. Um, you'd picked up on this gentleman operating in the system, Robert West, Professor of Health Psychology. Now we've got this interesting mix of are we dealing with psychology and, or, or people's health and well-being? Um, here he was uh, talking about competing interests that he under, undertook research and consultancy for companies that develop and manufacture smoking cessation medicines, Pfizer, GSK and Johnson & Johnson. Uh, but he's an unpaid advisor to the UK's National Centre for Smoking Cessation and Training. And his salary is funded by the charity Cancer Research. Uh, before I get you to comment, you were particularly interested on this, which you'd, you'd found in his blog, I think that's right, uh, which was about a plan for destroying the NHS. Uh, he said the university system and the rest of the public sector are also well on their way to the same fate. Just very, very quickly, because we are getting a little bit tight for time, Debbie, um, what have you seen with this gentleman and, and why are you concerned? Well, yeah, very quickly. Um, Professor Robert West is on the uh, Spy B team. His wife is Professor Susan Mickey, um, head of the Nudge Units. Um, and it was very interesting to me to see that he, he has, uh, he seems to be the expert and to battle things smoking. And yet he's funded by Research UK, who are funded by the pharmaceutical companies uh, like Pfizer, JSK, J&J, &J, et cetera. Uh, Cancer Research UK would appear to be a research development yeah. um, pharmaceutical companies and their board, uh, if you look at their board members, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, BBC, Imperial, um, AstraZeneca, there's there's a lot of a lot of companies involved on their board and they actually raised 656 million in 220 they've got 40,000 volunteers so my question really is uh, professor robert west who is he what is he doing and what is his agenda so i think he's on my radar a little bit and perhaps we should suggest that he should be on the radar of other people in the first instance to simply understand what this gentleman's interests are and who he's really serving. OK, thank you. 
Uh, okay, let's move on to Ukraine then. And uh, following uh, the, uh, the the Secretary of State for Defence's comments about Munich uh, last week, of course, the mainstream media took up the mantle and uh, other Second World War terms are being used. For example, D-Day at three o'clock this morning was supposed to be the beginning. Uh, so here's the Daily Mail. Uh, back from the brink, Putin says he doesn't want war. Well, I think if we've shown that Putin has been saying that for quite some time. But anyway, uh, D-Day arrives in Ukraine. Biden says war is still a risk amid fears Putin is uh, toying with the West by removing some tanks, but deploying more troops to the border on the day intelligence agencies predicted invasion would begin. So let's see what uh, Boris was pushing out yesterday. Uh, the update on Ukraine. The prime minister has given an update on the situation in Ukraine. There are signs of a diplomatic opening. Uh, but intelligence is not encouraging, certainly in Boris's case. Uh, the UK has a tough package of sanctions ready if Russia chooses war. So it's going to be a choice that Russia makes. Uh, and uh, the UK government maintained diplomacy and de-escalation is the only way forward. Uh, so that was the summary. Uh, but let's just listen to what Boris said. Uh, we've got a little bit of video of him here. Last night, going into today, clearly there are signs of a diplomatic opening. There always has been an opportunity to to talk. There, there, are, there are grounds for a conversation uh, about uh, about Ukraine with Ukraine, and that's good. We, we know we are seeing a Russian openness to uh, to conversations. On the other hand, the intelligence that we're seeing today is is still not encouraging. We've got uh, Russian field hospitals being constructed uh, near the border uh, with Ukraine in. In Belarus, uh, for you know, only can be uh, construed as a preparation for an invasion. You've got uh, more battalion tactical groups actually being brought closer uh, to the border uh, with Ukraine, according to the intelligence that we're we're seeing. So, mixed signals, I think, at the moment, and all the more reason, therefore, for us to remain very tough and and very united, and particularly on the economic sanctions. And and there, uh, what we're doing, as you know, the UK has been out in the in the lead for a. For a while, what we're doing is uh, targeting particular Russian banks, Russian uh, companies, and making sure that we uh, take steps or take even more steps to uh, unpeel the facade of uh, Russian property holdings, uh, whether in this city or, or elsewhere, whether in uh, London or elsewhere, uh, unpeel the facade of uh, Russian ownership of companies, and also take steps to stop Russian companies uh, from raising capital on London financial markets. Now, that is a very, very tough uh, package of sanctions. Uh, it's ready to go if, there is, uh, if uh, Russia is so, uh, so rash, so, so reckless as to invade Ukraine. Well, I was I was speechless there for for, uh, for 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 a few seconds, Mike, because of course, who has been funding the Tory Party <laughs> over the years? But Russian companies and Russians have have been putting vast sums of money into the Tory Party, but the, the Tory Party decided they didn't really want to give back. So, what is he talking about here? We've got we've got Russians in Russia. We've got Russian oligarchs operating in UK, which were in, who were invited in and coveted by our, our uh, political parties. Um, they loved it when the money was being given to uh, the Conservative Party. 
Um, what is he talking about? Well, right? so you have to be the right kind of Russian. Oh, right. You've got to be okay. the right kind of Russian. If you're the right kind of Russian, you get to give money to the Tory party and everything's okay. Right. You get to do business in the UK. You get to own football clubs and whatnot. But if you're the wrong kind of Russian, you get sanctions. And of course, Putin kicked out many of the wrong kind of Russians because they were into all sorts of uh, corruption and criminal activity. Um, but when it appears that some of them may have come to the UK, this is not a problem for the Conservative Party. Hypocrisy is a word, but it's not really suitable. It's not sufficient to describe what is coming out of Boris, uh, Boris's mouth. Right? Uh, indeed. And the other thing, the other problem coming out of his mouth, Alex, was the fact that he was uh, relying on intelligence. Well, we've relied on intelligence before when we've uh, uh, got ourselves into conflicts. Um, and uh, that intelligence hasn't necessarily been uh, uh, accurate or, or has been, or can we say that the intelligence has been manipulated? Uh, and so uh, I just was interested in your thoughts on that. Sorry, you're muted. To an old spook like me, we've gone full circle here uh, because much as it pains me to say it as a signals intelligence uh, officer in the MI6 GCHQ rivalry mirrors the CIA NSA rivalry, you need at the top of the hierarchy human intelligence. So that would be MI6 intelligence in Britain's case to confirm strategic stuff like when does the war start, if indeed it does start, right? Signals intelligence and what Mr. Johnson was talking about, which is almost exclusively imagery, is a technical and electronic intelligence. And that can really only be used to shore up an existing conclusion as to what's in the mind of the adversary. But of course, since 2003, with the dodgy dossier, nobody has believed human intelligence uh, with regards to the, the hottest and sexiest adversaries of Her Majesty's government for very well-known reasons. And just to finish that off, I mean, uh, the first time I went to the CIA British intelligence bilateral uh, in 2002, the CIA were tearing their hair out talking to the cabinet office led British delegation, the cross agency delegation, because even by then they said a quarter of a million of, in Mike's terms, the wrong kinds of Russian had already brought, uh, brought an average of uh, half a million uh, dollars each half a million pounds each, sorry, which was a million dollars at the exchange rate then to Britain. And they worked out that that was half a trillion dollars at the exchange rate then of undeclared uh, dodgy Russian capital coming into London. And of course, they just got a stony silence back because whether or not, you know, that was the Blair era, the party politics are, are secondary here, uh, the, the British deep state had already decided that the right kind of Russian, uh, from our perspective, from the deep state's perspective, was going to call the shots. And therefore, human intelligence is hopelessly compromised. And in the end, the Berezovsky clique ended up running MI6's Russia desk under Christopher Steele, whom I knew personally. I know that sounds very intense as a conclusion, but I saw it time and again. Yes. Well, um, let's uh, then move to NATO because uh, NATO's holding its defence ministers meeting today. Um, we'll come on to that in a little bit in a second. But I just wanted to uh, highlight a short extract from uh, the comments that uh, Jens Stoltenberg made yesterday on this. There are signs from Moscow that uh, diplomacy should continue. This gives grounds for cautious optimism. But so far, we have not seen any sign of de-escalation on the ground. Russia has amassed a fighting force in and around Ukraine, unprecedented since the Cold War. Everything is now in place for a new attack. But Russia still has time to step back from the brink stop preparing for war, 
and start working for a peaceful solution. So what fascinated me about that was uh, the uh, in and around Ukraine uh, remark. So it's the claim that the Russians have already invaded. Well, I thought that when they invaded, we were going to react. But apparently in and around Ukraine is what Jens Stoltenberg said. Well, maybe he was referring to this. So this statement came out from the Russian Defense Ministry yesterday. Uh, uh, if we just put that up on screen there. And uh, this is them, first of all, removing uh, significant numbers of tanks uh, by train. Uh, and also uh, some other arms and uh, material by road. Uh, and so the Russian Defense Ministry said that the units of the uh, Southern Military District, which have completed their uh, participation in tactical exercises at the training grounds in Crimea, uh, and uh, uh, sorry, on the Crimean Peninsula, and are marching to their permanent deployment points by rail. This is the, the Russian's translation, so it, the, the words aren't quite right. But anyway, the personnel of the unit uh, loaded armored vehicles onto the Caterpillar tracks, uh, tanks, uh, infantry fighting vehicles, and self-propelled artillery, artillery mounts onto railway platforms or loading stations. Uh, military equipment and service will be Servicemen will be delivered by military trains to the points of permanent deployment by military units. So I presume that's what they're talking about. But of course, the thing is that this, uh, sorry, this issue of, uh, uh, of Russian uh, deployment or Russian exercises taking place in Crimea has been going on for, for quite a long time. Euro, Euro News was reporting this uh, around a year ago. Uh, there were exercises going on in Crimea involving Russian troops at that time. So I'm not really clear what Jens Stoltenberg was getting on uh, to with the sort of in and around comment. Um, and we have to remember that if it is a suggestion that the Russians uh, effectively invaded uh, Crimea by holding an exercise in Crimea, we have to remember, Alex, that, that the referendum uh, seems to be something that they continue to want to ignore. Yes, I mean, like so many of the former Soviet territories, uh, autonomous republics within Soviet republics, the status of these is not clear-cut in international law. Uh, you know, with Ukraine, Georgia and others, the British and American position since uh, deciding to take against Putin has been, uh, we declare our support for the territorial integrity and sovereignty of these countries. But there were autonomous republics with constitutions and national wills within the national republics, the 14 non-Russian Soviet republics. Uh, so this is absolutely not as done and dusted as people think. And Putin did warn the Munich Security Conference before the West recognized Kosovo that it would trigger uh, the analogous grey zone in the east, that the likes of Abkhazia, and he didn't mention it, but Crimea, would therefore have an equivalent position in international law uh, to declare their own sovereignty. Yes. So then the question is, uh, this diplomatic momentum that suddenly appeared, because we were hearing all kinds of stories about D-Day and, and uh, this morning at 3 a.m. being the, the time that we were going to uh, move forward. And But at the same time as we've been reporting over the last couple of weeks, there's been this uh, diplomacy effort going on from the Europeans. Um, and so here is uh, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Olaf Scholz, uh, who, of course, is the new boss of uh, Germany. Um, and uh, well, he was in Moscow yesterday as they're socially distanced uh, as usual there. I think they're making fun of the, the comments about uh, uh, recent uh, about big tables and so on that we saw recently. Uh, but uh, Olaf Schultz uh, meeting Putin uh, and Schultz saying basically this is a good starting point. The discussions that they were having 
Uh, given the difficult uh, uh, challenges we faced during our talks, President Putin told me about his consultation with Russia's foreign and defense ministers. He spoke, spoke about this, I agree. Diplomatic opportunities have not yet been exhausted. Uh, now it's necessary to work with uh, dedication and courage and peacefully resolve the crisis. So um, perhaps uh, this German intervention following the French intervention last week has managed to pull the whole thing back a little bit. But as I mentioned uh, a second ago, uh, NATO is committed to finding a political solution to the crisis, but it will not compromise on its core principles because the defense minister's meeting is going on as we speak. Um, and uh, so again, they're sort of hinting at their ballot box and the bomb uh, approach to this. Um, but uh, we'll be glad to know that this, uh, no matter what's going on with respect to NATO, Britain's bilateral uh, efforts continue apace, Alex. And I thought that was this one was very interesting. This was the Lithuanian Ministry of Defence tweeting this out. British intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance team uh, arrived in Lithuania today to uh, support the Lithuanian army intelligence capabilities. The United Kingdom is providing this support on a bilateral basis in response to Lithuania's needs. Thank you. Uh, and uh, this bilateral... Uh, cooperation is something that that really the British public knows very little about? Uh, indeed so, and it applies to all of these countries. And given Lithuania's location uh, on the east side of the Kaliningrad exclave of Russia, uh, and also given that the British army may have some Russian speakers, very few Lithuanian speakers, but nothing to compare with the Lithuanian army intelligence, the only role they can have is handling, directing and teaching tradecraft to Lithuanians who scuttle inside the Kaliningrad Oblast uh, to have a look at uh, docks and missiles is the long and the short of it. I don't think they have any more uh, humble human intelligence role to offer or technical capacity that they couldn't offer at a distance through, through MI6 and the embassy. So that's what it'll be about. It'll be about directing Lithuanians to scuttle into Kaliningrad. And if they get slotted, then it won't be any of Her Majesty's business. Yeah, indeed. Okay, well, uh, speaking of uh, of people getting slotted, let's uh, have a look at uh, Operation Orbital. Now, we brought this to your attention in, uh, at the end of January. I think it was the the 31st of January was when we mentioned Operation Or Orbital on this program. Uh, this was the British efforts to train Ukrainian armed forces. Um, so the British government says that they've trained 22,000 Ukrainian troops since 2015, and further military trainers were sent to the, uh, the country earlier in January to support the training of Ukrainian forces to use 2,000 missiles sent from the UK. Um, so then uh, this morning, I saw this article in Mail. Elderly Ukrainian woman pictured around the world learning how to fight off Putin is being trained by far-right paramilitaries. Azov Battalion's founders believe minorities are subhuman and proudly wear SS uh, insignia. And uh, this is something that we've been uh, talking about on this program quite a bit over the last uh, couple of years, in fact. Um, but the question in my mind was, uh, have these Azov, has the Azov Battalion, have the uh, other similar battalions in, in Ukraine being trained by uh, Britain as well, because of course that might be a little bit embarrassing for the Ministry of Defence if, uh, if uh, we are training uh, far-right paramilitaries, or in fact a better word for them might be Nazis. Um, so, uh, so the Ministry of Defence of course denies absolutely that they have been, but unfortunately the, uh, the National Guard of Ukraine, um, this is a translation of the page, uh, but the National Guard of Ukraine uh, published this in September. The National Guard of Ukraine will deepen military cooperation with the uh, armed forces of the United Kingdom. And the Azov Battalion uh, is part of the National Guard of Ukraine. Um, so uh, 
they published a whole uh, bunch of photographs of, of uh, uh, the uh, um, Operation Orbital team speaking to the National Guard representatives here. Uh, there they are. They all look very fetching, don't they? Um, and uh, uh, so we can see quite clearly that uh, one person in particular has got the uh, Operation Orbital badge on. So, uh, so that's that. Um, so the question is, uh, we did mention that uh, uh, the British government denies that they have been training neo-Nazi linked Ukraine unit. Uh, that denial, well, we may have some skepticism about it. But I just want to mention that this particular story uh, broke in Declassified UK. Uh, UK commanders in Ukraine met neo-Nazi-linked uh, National Guard to deepen military cooperation. And they uh, quote from the uh, National Guard's article there, uh, currently we're considering the issue of training with the services of the National Guard of Ukraine. This is from uh, Lieutenant Colonel Andy Cox from Operational Orbital. So we're considering training with the services of the National Guard. Uh, uh, on the conduct of defence operations and the work of staff officers. We will start this work with the inclusion of NMU representatives in the training activities that have already been conducted by British instructors in some units of the armed forces of Ukraine. Um, so, Alex, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but that I can't quite work out what he's saying there. We're considering issue of training, uh, but this work will start. Um, so it, it seems like the work the, the intention was to start it, and it may already have started. I think that's a deliberate double entendre, because considering could mean debating or working out what to do. But more commonly, and perhaps the intent behind how we're to interpret it, would be that the lieutenant colonel is suggesting we might, we might go ahead and do it. But as you've pointed out, they already are. So uh, no, it's well known uh, to anyone who partners with Eastern European countries that par parties and oligarch movements have their private armies, not often uh, just you know, uniformed and kitted out straight out, straight out of um, a private base. But more often you get men who are poor and desperate and ideologically on sides to swear loyalty to you, the oligarch or the party, while they are in service with some national military service branch. And that seems to be how one of the parties in Ukraine got itself the Azov Battalion as its party militia. And that party uh, was uh, well after the September uh, document you read out until around New Year was part of the governing coalition in Ukraine. So there, there would be neither de facto nor de jure. Would there be a way for the British to insist on the Ukrainians weeding out Azov battalion men from the training that they were providing? These men are thoroughly integrated. Uh, and it's not just Britain either. So let's uh, put this declassified UK article back on screen again. Another quote this time uh, from uh, Colonel uh, Serly. Uh, Maltsev, who's the head of uh, the Department of International Cooperation in the Ukrainian National Guard, he said, for several years in a row, the National Guard of Ukraine uh, has been actively cooperating with the Canadian Armed Forces in the framework of Operation Unifor, Unifor in various areas of training. Uh, the cooperation made by the Canadian military to build, building the capacity of the guards is difficult to overestimate. Our joint achievements with our Canadian counterparts can serve as an example of the future cooperation of the NMU and Operation Orbital. So, Alex, that seems like a, a, a clear admission by the uh, Ukrainians that uh, Canada has been providing quite a lot of support to what are effectively is a Nazi group. 
Nor should it come as any surprise, because the the awful woman who is now Deputy Prime Minister under Trudeau in Canada, previously Minister of External Affairs and running trade policy, Christia Freeland, has frankly admitted that she, because of her Ukrainian uh, grandfather, regards herself as a pusher of Ukrainian nationalism, who's taking advantage of her Canadian cabinet posts to do so. And she's just one of many. Um, Latvia and Ukraine, to name the two main examples, had very large diasporas that went to Canada and that have agitated very hard for Western Ukraine in particular to break off, uh, and certainly first of all from the Soviet Union and then later uh, to steer policy in Ukraine, to to nationalise or to make extreme the policy pursued by the whole of Ukraine towards its Russian-speaking minorities. So that shouldn't surprise us at all. Um, And just to end this, then, uh, Canada apparently has now decided that it has to provide lethal weapons to Ukraine, uh, including machine guns, pistols, carbines, ammunition, in light of the seriousness of the situation and following conversations with our Ukrainian partners. uh, Trudeau said, I have approved the provision of 7.8 million Canadian dollars worth of lethal equipment and ammunition. Uh, The intent of this support from Canada and other uh, partners is to deter further Russian aggression. Um, so uh, there you go, Canada uh, well in on it, on it as well. Uh, but Alex, you have an email from a, a, a viewer on this, on, on the issue of Ukraine and Russia. Yes, and thanks to viewers' donations, we have the staffing now to make sure that more of these emails get through to me than the ones that I get on my own account. This was sent through to UK Column generally. The viewer uh, observes very aptly, whilst researching around the issues around the current tensions between Ukraine and Russia, I learned that Ukraine had its national and Western-based debt, uh, viewers who aren't familiar with this should think about the EBRD and such institutions, cut by 20% in 2015-2016 after the first 2014 conflict in Ukraine. Well, actually, that was about the third or fourth colour revolution, but it's the main one. So 2014 is the baseline. Russia, says the viewer, is owed £2 billion by Ukraine. This was due for repayment in 2019. And Ukraine publicly has refused to pay unless Russia accepts the same 20% reduction in its payment. There's echoes of the 2006 gas crisis here. I wonder, says the viewer, if a Western conditionality of Ukraine NATO membership was placed as a contractual condition for the original 20% reduction in the Ukraine debt. And there's a bit more people can read on screen that's frozen, but we're short for time. That is a key insight. And people can scoff at that there. They might say, well, what does NATO have to do with bank loans? But our view is correctly pointing out that if this dirty deal has been done, it will have been done at the level of instruments, financial instruments between governments. NATO membership is a liability, a risk there that the Ukrainian government would have to bear Uh, whether it could wangle it or not. So it's not going to show up in formal uh, defence diplomacy. I certainly wouldn't exclude it. It seems to be a large part of what was done in the run-up to the 2008 Georgia war on a more modest scale as well. So well done, viewer. Uh, Yes, indeed. Okay, Alex, we are out of time, unfortunately. So let's just uh, uh, run through the the final slides that you had for us here um, from Charles May in a tweet, first of all. Yes, uh, I like this uh, riposte because somebody, Tim Grogan, who I think is not particularly a public figure, uh, is puffing up the modern understanding of of the democracy, the one that the cabinet office is pushing increasingly uh, agitatedly. And Tim Grogan says, somewhat naively, what makes democracy resilient, uh, a nice, nice globalist buzzword there, is that the people are able to pick up the causes they believe in. Notice this is participatory agitation democracy. Argue safely with their opponents, ah, feel safe as the, as the modern uh, discourse. And ultimately, decisions are left to the collective will of the people. Well, the Dissident's Guide to the Constitution has pointed out that that's a nonsense concept. It's far from perfect, says Mr. Grogan, 
but it's the best we've come up with so far. So shades of, of, of um, uh, Churchill saying uh, all the other systems are even worse. Charles's response is, hello, in the democracy I live in, I haven't checked, it presumably is one of the Anglo-Saxon ones, it is very unsafe to argue with my opponents. I live a double life to protect myself from their revenge. Decisions do not include the will of people like me. Democracy ruthlessly suppresses the will of collectives that challenge the ruling class. This is all as predicted by Lord Denning in the uh, concept of the dictatorship uh, of the, the tyranny of the majority. Uh, and you know we've, we've seen successive waves of this now in the name of democracy. Uh, 49% of the population, if not more, if you massage the figures, um, can be terror terrorised and tyrannised in the name of democracy. And the final slide from me is another one of these wonderful cartoons by Bob Moran. And it's just in Trudeau dressed up as um, a Mussolini figure. So he, on his belt, he has the slogan, build back better with the sixes instead of Bs. Uh, he's got a cap badge of the World Economic Forum. There's so much detail on there. Uh, on his sash is a, is a muzzled citizen. There's a pentagram on his uh, medallion. There's an upside down maple leaf as one of his uh, um, medals. There's a lateral flow test and a QR code as one of his medals. Uh, there's a sexual ambiguity symbol as the sort of central piece of bling. Uh, his braid is fashioned into two sharp syringes. Um, his epaulets are oversized and underneath one of them is a no truckers em uh, emblem it, or, or, or a prohibition sign. A masterful cartoon there, I think, by Bob yeah. Moran. Absolutely brilliant. Um, okay. Masterfully accurate, I think. Yes. Uh, well, I'd just like to uh, help the ending of today's news by saying that uh, I did a little bit of research while we were just finishing there. And of course, if you have a little look, just do a little bit of research on Russian money coming into the Conservative Party. And we're not talking small amounts. We're talking £25,000 coming into individual MPs. We're talking about donations of 450000 We're dealing with total donations of £1.2 That's even before you get started. So Boris Johnson squirming there and full of bluster and words, uh, because it would seem that the Russians are actually remarkably good, or one set of Russians are remarkably good at funding the Tory party. Indeed. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to say we'll be back in a few minutes for some extra on the main stream. Indeed. That's it for today. So we're going to say to Alex and uh, Debbie Evans, thank you very much for joining us. Um,